0: Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning. Uh, For those that haven't met me yet, I'm Bruce Struxma. I am the pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, If you are new, I would love to get to know you or have you fill out a, a welcome packet so we can give you a gift um, but we are in the middle of a series called Israel's Playlist, looking at the Psalms. And as Cher uh, mentioned in her prayer, we are going to be looking at Psalm 121 this morning. I would encourage you to turn there and join us and follow along. Before we do that, I want to ask kind of a, a, a seemingly random question. And, and I would love some feedback here. Uh, we'll do the raise your hand thing. Um, I want to I ask a couple questions about Christmas music. I know it's the wrong time of year, but I want to ask a couple... When is the appropriate time to start playing Christmas music in your home? That is my question. Anybody? Christmas Eve. Any Christmas Eve people? Not before? No? Okay. Not too many Grinches. Good. Uh, Thanksgiving. The day after Thanksgiving. Black Friday. Okay, that's the correct answer. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Halloween. Anybody after Halloween? And I see you're married to somebody who has a later date. If you need counseling in your relationship, let me know. Um, we We can talk... We have these times. I worked with a guy for a number of years who was a Halloween person and we shared an office and not only would he play Christmas music but he would decorate for Christmas the day after Halloween and I'd share an office with him and it caused some conflict because I am a after Thanksgiving person. And uh, it really didn't cause conflict, but we did have to, we had to compromise. I told them you can decorate, you just can't play the music. And that was kind of our, that was kind of our compromise. But I bring that up because uh, seasonal holiday music bring, brings about for some of us, it gets us in the spirit, right? When we hear that first Christmas carol, it gets us in a Christmas mindset. Um, if, we, if we hear that song, it gets us into that, that head space. And so we have these seasonal songs. And here in the church and in our societies, we have certain songs that bring about specific times. We sing happy birthday, everybody knows what it is. It's it's somebody's birthday, right? Uh, Take me out to the ball game. When we hear take me out to the ball game, there's a touch point in our minds for those of us that like baseball, we know that what? It's the seventh inning stretch. It's time to go buy another bag of popcorn or something. God Bless America, same thing, especially if you're at a Yankees game, right? We have these touch points, these songs that bring up at specific moments, that song we play whenever the Vikings win the Super Bowl. I don't know what song it is yet, but there's a song that we will play someday, I have hope. <laughs> but we have these songs, these, and, and when we look at Psalm 121, we're, we're, we're talking about a specific moment. We're talking about, you'll see at the top of it, it says a song of ascent. And there are 15 psalms right in this area uh, and they're all together and they're songs of ascent. And, and, and no, that doesn't mean you, know, you play them when you're going uphill, right? Um, but they are songs of ascent. They were ceremonial, they were liturgical, they were for a specific seasonal moment. We would play these songs and they're all grouped together. But they weren't originally intended that way. I mean, not all of them at least, and and I want to use one more contemporary example, and I think it's fitting because it's the 4th of July. I want to compare it a bit to the Star-Spangled Banner, and so I'm going to read from Wikipedia the source of of truth. The Star-Spangled Banner is the national anthem of the United States. The lyrics come from The Defense of Fort McHenry, a poem written by Francis Scott Key, September 14th, 1814. After witnessing the bombardment of Fort McHenry by British ships of the Royal Navy during the War of 1812. Key was inspired by the large U.S. flag, which is pictured behind me, which has, if you count it, 15 stars and 15 stripes. Just interesting side note, there was a time in U.S. history where every time they added a state, they added not only a star, but a stripe. Imagine now if we had 50 stripes and 50 stars. And so they stopped. At 15, after adding, and I wrote it down here so that I wouldn't forget, they stopped when they added Vermont and Kentucky because they were afraid that it would get too cluttered. And so here they are. They actually had more states than 15 when Francis Scott Keyes saw it. But anyway, I digress. But later, they reduced it to 13 and started adding just a star for every state. But this flag he was looking at had 15 stars and 15 stripes. But the music is from the 1770s from a British musical society. So the music wasn't written for the Star-Spangled Banner. He wrote the poem knowing this song existed and wanting his lyrics attached to this song from the the British, (laughs) which I think is kind of funny to be sitting on a British warship and to steal their music for our national anthem. I mean... Just, anyway, back to Wikipedia. The Star-Spangled Banner was first recognized for official use by the U.S. Navy in 1889. And on March 3rd, 1931, the U.S. Congress passed a joint resolution making the song the official national anthem of the United States, which President Herbert, Herbert Hoover signed into law. So I say that to say that here is a poem attached to British music written about a specific time in U.S. history to arouse patriotic feelings that has now become our national anthem. And it's a song that if you hear it now and you're at a ball game or you're at a school function or you're out in, you know, watching a parade somewhere and you hear it, well, we automatically know what to do. We stand up and we, we pay reverence and respect to the U.S. flag. And I, I share that to say that's kind of what these songs of ascent were meant to do spiritually. Not necessarily patriotically, but spiritually. The Psalms of Ascent are similar. They were Psalms written for a specific time and purpose, and they over time got collected. So they weren't necessarily written about that moment, but they were collected to become these Psalms of Ascent, and there's 15 of them corresponding to the 15 steps into the temple. The idea being that you, as you moved into this time of worship, there were 15 songs. And so... Like Luke last week shared, the Psalms are broken into five books corresponding or relating to, not necessarily referencing, but paralleling the five books written by Moses in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Here are 15 songs relating to the 15 steps. And they became these songs of ascent, these songs that pilgrims and, and people proceeding to the temple would sing on their way, the temple, relating to the 15 steps into the temple. And so we have these psalms of ascent, and they were sung as people ascended together in worship during a festival. So these psalms came to have a liturgical touch point, a song that when it was sung like like a Christmas carol brings us into mind the Christmas season. These songs, these psalms were intended to be sung as they ascended to the temple. And Jerusalem was built on a hill. And so as they ascended towards Jerusalem, they would sing these songs, reminding themselves of where they're stepping into. And we do this as well, We have these liturgical touch points, these things that bring us in to worship. This morning we had a welcome, and we had a prayer, and we sang some songs, and we had a prayer. And all of that is intended to move us into a spot of worship. They're all liturgical touch points. That our goal is that as a body we come together in worship. Worship, that that these are not things making us spiritual, making us godly, but they are things putting us in a position to be touched by the Spirit of God if we open ourselves in worship. And so that is what these are called to do. That's what these are, these liturgical things. And in the same way, in a little bit, we're going to do communion. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, which is a letter written by Paul to the people in Corinth about how they were not treating their worship correctly, their time of communion correctly, but it has become a liturgical touchpoint for us that brings us into that communion time and reminds us why we're doing it. And that's what these Psalms of Ascent were supposed to be, so take them that way. And our psalmist is going to build an argument this morning. And, and as much as it's a song, it's also building an argument of how we see God. And as we are worshipers, do we come in expecting to experience God the way we want, in the format we want, with the words said that we want, or are we coming in, opening ourselves and saying, God, if you are here, I want to be touched by you. And so listen to the argument as we read Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And as I said, the psalmist is building an argument, and the first point of his argument is this. God is the God. God is the God. Our passage starts with the psalmist. Like I said, most people singing this would be ascending the big hill up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is built surrounded by hills. And so the idea of bringing our eyes up, I lift my eyes up to the hills or to the mountains. Where does my help come from? It starts on a positive perspective. Since this is a psalm of ascent, it is likely that the psalmist is directing our eyes to the hills where the temple and God dwells. But the hills, especially the hills around Jerusalem, have a mixed history with Israel. And so it's not so cut and dried if the imagery is 100% positive. Because the hills were considered to be the doorway to the heavens. Literally, a lot of times they would build high places to worship pagan deities because the high places on top of hills were closer to the heavens, therefore closer to God, therefore more likely for my worship to be heard and understood. So there's an argument to be made that potentially what the psalmist is saying, as you lift your eyes up to the hills, are you looking to the God or are you looking to a God? I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? Not from the hills, but from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And, and we don't know his intentionality, but I want to kind of sit in the tension of both because I think both can relate to us. There are times where we lift our eyes up to the hills and we see God's creation, we see the glory of God and our thoughts naturally turn to the God, but there are other times that we lift our eyes up to those places that we've gone to before because they make us feel better. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. The hills and high places were where people went to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. So there's a mixed understanding, especially around the hills Of Israel, and if you read through the story of Judges and the Kings and Chronicles, you'll see again and again and again and again the phrase, But the high places were not torn down. For a parallel, let's look at Mount Carmel in first Kings eighteen, verses sixteen through nineteen. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So Elijah had been hiding for a long time from Ahab. And finally, he goes to Obadiah and says, tell him I'm here. And Obadiah says, listen, I'll go tell him you're here. But if you're gone, he's going to kill me because he's been looking for you. He says, I promise I won't leave. So Obadiah goes and tells him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And I share that story, and we're going to kind of parallel that story throughout our psalm this morning, but I I share that story because Mount Carmel literally means God's vineyard. Uh, Literally uh, from an orchard planted with vines and fruit trees. So Mount Carmel means the vineyard of God but it was this place that had become a pagan shrine of worship to Baal. And it's after Elijah has declared a long drought, which is a direct affront to Baal, the storm god. So here's Baal that they've been worshiping, the god of storms. And Elijah says, to show that God isn't real, there's going to be a drought. Pray as much as you want to your storm god, no storm. And Carmel, Mount Carmel, is aside from being known as this pagan worship spot to Baal, it is also known as a hideout for thieves and where somebody can hide from God. So there's a lot of symbolism going on here that Elijah, who worships the true God, has been hiding from Ahab and his God, literally on the spot that they're told they can hide from God because it's a pagan shrine to Baal. He is stacking the deck For what's about to happen in Baal's favor to show that Baal is pointless. Amos 9 3 Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. What does all this have to do with our psalm? Basically, it means that whether this passage is specifically saying the hills, are a place that draw our eyes to God, or maybe those hills are those pagan gods that we worship of money, power, and success. Whatever it is, are we keeping our eyes focused on the God? Are we letting all the things in life, God, as he works through nature, draw our eyes to him, or are we being distracted? Either way, the question is, who is your God? And where are your eyes staying focused? I'm gonna share a story that Darren gave me permission to share. But when Darren was a little kid, just learning how to ride his bike, we went to Baker Park, where we will be next week for our baptism service, and we were there biking, and there was this long downhill, and he had one of those, I think it was one of those strider bikes, you know, without pedals, where you just kind of coast on it to learn to balance. And there was this long grassy downhill, Uh, maybe he had pedals at this point, do you remember? Did you have pedals? Don't know. Okay. Uh, He was going downhill, and we were working on getting momentum going, and we were like, just go down the hill. And on this big, wide, green, empty hill was one tree. And we aimed him away from the tree, and I said, Darren, just don't hit the tree. And he goes down the hill, and where do his eyes go immediately? To the one tree. And his bike just turned and headed right to it. And we were, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree. And the more we told him not to hit the tree, the more he looked at the tree. And if you bike, you know that where your eyes are focused is where your bike goes. And Darren ran into the only tree on the hill because that's where his eyes were focused. So I ask you, where are your eyes focused? Are your eyes focused on the problems of this world or the things we look to in trauma that can't save us or are our eyes focused On the God. Where are your eyes focused? For Elijah, this was the reminder for God's people that God is the God. He is stacking the deck in favor of the Baals to show that God is the God. Are you going to trust in ourselves, in our money, in our success, in our station in life, in our power, in our position, in our government, in whatever, or are we going to look to the God? and keep our eyes focused there. Because he is the God, and the psalmist builds their argument, God is also aware. God is aware of what is going on. Verses 3 and 4, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Notice the intentionality and the awareness of God. God is an aware God. He is not some far-off deity who is God but doesn't care. God is aware of what is going on in our world, and he is aware of what is going on in your life and in mine. And it says that God will not let our feet slip. And remember that this song is sung on the way up to Jerusalem. They're hiking up a steep hill. God will not let your feet slip is a very vivid imagery that I'm sure they were experiencing. If any of you have hiked a steep hill, you know what it's like to slip. When I was in college, I worked at Rock Ridge up in the Boundary Waters, and we had um, this portage, which is where you carry, for those that don't know what a portage is, is where you carry your canoe and your pack between lakes, right? And we had this one portage, and it was from High Lake, or no, sorry, from Bass Lake to Dry Lake. Um, And there was a waterfall called Dry Falls because it came out of Dry Lake because the lake was slowly drying up. Um, But it's Dry Falls, and it was really steep The portage started with this really steep climb, and then up the waterfall, and then back to the lake. And I remember having to carry the first time we get to this, we're going to do this, and I I got the canoe, I have a pack, I have the canoe on, and I start up this steep incline, and my foot slipped. And I fell, and I fell hard enough that I fell into the canoe, which slid back down the hill, right out of a cartoon, And I said, is that what what this psalm is promising, that our foot will never slip? That if we follow Jesus, our foot will never, you know, I shouldn't have fallen down the hill. My life should never fall apart if I follow Jesus. I'll never have problems. Is that what it's saying? When it says my foot will never slip. Well, Satan uses that idea when he confronts Jesus and tempts Jesus. From Psalm 91, the same idea. Satan turns to Jesus and says, throw yourself off of here, off of this high point, and you won't hit the ground because the psalm says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. See, Jesus, you shouldn't get hurt. Throw yourself off. See what happens. And Jesus confronts Satan and says, do not tempt me. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan tries to take this psalm and make it about physical harm being prevented. And Jesus confronts that. That's not what the Psalm is about. It's not saying that if you trust Jesus, you'll never have hardship. What it's saying is that if you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, he will not let your foot slip spiritually. Your journey, your relationship with God, if you keep your eyes focused on him, will be better. It doesn't mean you won't have hardship. It doesn't mean you won't have pain. It doesn't mean you won't have trial. That's not what it's saying. But he's drawing our eyes to our spiritual journey as we pursue God. As we pursue God, we are certain of of good spiritual footing. With our eyes on Christ instead of ourselves, we can be certain that God will journey with us and watch over us. And second, it reminds us that our God is not asleep. And we're going to go back to the story of Elijah, because Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel, he has stacked the deck in the favor of Baal. And this is his criticism of Baal. So the prophets of Baal, they, they not only get to meet on their mountain, but they get to build their altar first, and they get the first choice of offerings. And he says, but don't light it on fire. And then call out to your God and see what happens. And they sit there, and they call out, and in passion, they start cutting their bodies. God, you know, Baal, look at how devoted I am to you. And nothing happens. And what is Elijah's criticism? He says this, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. And our psalmist reminds us that unlike Baal, which is not a god, our god does not sleep. Our god does not slumber, which for anybody who's been up in the middle of the night because you've been awoken by anxiety or by stress, or maybe you have a newborn baby at home that's keeping you up, or maybe whatever it is, isn't it nice to know in the middle of the night that you're not alone, that our God doesn't need to sleep? And not only is our God there with us, our God is fully aware of everything we are going through. And if we keep our eyes focused on him, we know that God is traveling with us on our journey. We know he cares. And this is our next step in our perspective on God this morning. Verses five and six. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. God is not just awake and aware. God cares. And God is not just a God of a country or a community, or a church. He is a personal God. God is my God. God is your God. God is our God. God is personally invested in who we are. The author moves from a community focus of God who watches over Israel to a personal God. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. One thing in Scripture that I think sometimes we miss because we don't live in that culture, right? Our culture today, we don't have too many temptations to worship literal idols. You know, images of false gods made of wood and stone like they saw back then, the Baals, the Asherah poles. All of these things were were literal pagan deities. Ours are more subtle. And we've talked about them a lot here, um, and so I hope this this resonates with you that we have our own deities that we lift up in pride, in power, in self-assurance. All of those things can become deities, but they're not as in your face as they used to be. And so I think when we read Scripture then, sometimes we miss how often, like in our story in Kings with Elijah and Baals, how often God is confronting the false gods that the people were tempted to worship directly, He is targeting them. When they put their confidence in something besides Him, He intentionally goes after that thing to show that it's not a real God. Because He is a jealous God, not jealous in the sense of of vanity, but jealous for our souls. He wants us to worship the true God, the only God, the God that cares about us personally, not something empty and hollow that will just doom us. He is a jealous God. And we miss that, and, and we're, we're sharing a little bit from Kings, this story of Elijah and the Baals, and you're seeing how through Elijah, God is confronting the Baals. There's a drought when it's a storm, God. Another one that I think we miss is in Egypt, and we look at the plagues, and we see these things happening to the Egyptians, and we go, man, why is God doing this to them? He is directly confronting the Egyptian gods. Just briefly, a list. Striking the Nile and turning it to blood strikes at Num and Hopi, the gods of the Nile, and Osiris. The Nile was considered his bloodstream. God turns it to literal blood. Frogs, the goddess Hecht was the goddess of childbirth and was depicted as a frog. They were not allowed to kill frogs because of how sacred it was. And here are frogs all over, and if you read in Exodus, to the point that they were stepping on them and killing them. They're being forced to do this. This is your God? Here it is, all over. Lice, struck at the cleanliness of the priesthood and make them unable to appeal to the gods on the people's behalf. Flies, I don't know how to say this one. chit. I think. chit. A lot of, lot of vowels and consonants together. Um, their God took the form of a fly. For cattle, Hathor, the God of love, was represented by the cow. Remember, the cattle, the livestock, were struck down. Memphis was worshipped through an apis bull, which is a firstborn bull, which, if it wasn't struck down in there, will be struck down later. Newt from H- the, the, the hail, the plague of hail. Newt was the weather god. couldn 't do anything about it. Locust, Isis and Seth, the god of crops, and the locusts destroy the crops. Ra, the sun god, was struck when there was a plague of darkness, and the plague of the firstborn. Aside from the bull and many others, Pharaoh himself was a god, and his firstborn son was therefore the next god. So God wasn't just tormenting people. He was directly attacking what they put their faith in. And as Luke so eloquently reminded us last week from his psalm, when we find ourselves in the wilderness of loneliness, when we find ourselves in the pit of addiction, when we find ourselves in sickness and anxiety, or in the sea of overexertion, where do our eyes turn? Do they turn to the gods that we turn to of of medicine, of success, of power? And, and can God use things? Yes. But do we turn there, or are we turning to God? Where Are our eyes, and is perhaps God potentially striking at something that we have put too much faith in? If we put our trust in our own systems and our own powers, we can expect God to confront that. But the inverse is true and is seen in our passage. God cares for us personally, unlike those gods. Our God cares deeply for us and desires that we turn to him in repentance. And we see this in Exodus, and I think we miss this. We see in Exodus, and we're, we're, we look at that story, and, and we miss how much how much God is confronting the false gods of Egypt. We also miss that it worked. In Exodus 12, verse 12, On the same night I will pass through, this is the Passover, the, the death of the firstborn, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every first born of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So he tells us why he's doing it. But skip ahead a few verses. Verses 37 and 38 of the same chapter, here's how we know it worked. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And verse 38, many other people went up with them. The Israelites went, and many other people went with them. People saw that God was confronting their gods, and they responded, not all of them, but some did. If you read through the plagues, you see, you see the Egyptian um, priests going, we, we can't do that, that's a god. We can't, we can't replicate that. They saw it for what it was. We see the people of Egypt pushing back when Pharaoh's like, we're not doing this. Like, some of them responded, "Like get the livestock in. Some of them responded. The question is, when God confronts, how are you going to respond? When we put these things up and hold them up as the thing that we are going to put our hope and trust in and God confronts that, how do we respond? Do we do like the psalm says and trust that God is for us and God is our God and cares for us, or are we putting our trust in other things? The image of God as our shade should bring comfort to us. Again, in their mind, in their world, All of those around him worshipped the sun and the moon, and they were seen as deities. So to be shade from the moon, that's one of those things where we're like, do you really need shade from the moon? I don't get that imagery. But our psalmist is pointing out that God is God. He's bigger than those gods. The idea of being moonstruck was how they described somebody with seizures in Matthew. The book of Matthew, when that boy has seizures, they bring him to God. The term they use is moonstruck. There is a false deity, that people were concerned that the sun and the moon could cause these things. So the image of God being bigger than that, he goes, I can be your shade. I can protect you from these false gods because they aren't gods. I am. So where is your hope? And back to Elijah and his prayer, when he finally calls on God to burn up his sacrifice, why does he do it? Because he wants everyone to know who God is and that he is God. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Because he is our God. God cares about each and every one of us personally and he cares about each and every person in this world who is not putting hope in who he is. So where is our focus? And why does God do this? Why does God confront these false gods that we are tempted to put our hope in? Why? Because he is good. Because he is good. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Why does God care so much that we worship him and him alone? Because God is Tov. And Tov is the word for good in the Old Testament. We see it first in Genesis 1-4. God saw that the light was good the light was tov that idea of goodness and i want to unpack i use that word tov for a reason because i want to unpack a little bit what that word stands for because i think it means more than what we think good means when god says the light is good he's not like yeah it's good like i might go to a restaurant here in town and have you know the the burrito at la katrina and and somebody will be like how was it like, it was good And depending on the tone I use, sometimes you'll be like, oh, it was good, or sometimes you know that that's Minnesota nice for I didn't like it. That's not the word here. We need the godly definition of good, which is tov. God is tov. When Moses asked to see God's glory, show me your glory, he says in Exodus 33, 18-19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, God, said... I will make my tove pass before you. I'll make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. When he asks to see God's glory, God says, I'm gonna show you my goodness, my tove." God pursues us with this idea of tove. Psalm 23, six, surely your toveness, your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. God is good, and it is a more full understanding of that word than what we have. And tov, godly goodness, is our goal. Matthew 25, 23, the words we all hope to hear someday standing before God, well done, good and faithful servant. And that goodness is more than common decency. It's godly goodness. God is good. God is good. Tov. So how does our passage point to Tov? Because we are called to trust God. This is a future focus. The psalmist has been building this argument and all of a sudden the psalmist turns to this future focus. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. And again, that doesn't mean we'll be promised no hardship, but it means that if we walk with God, we know God is good, and we can trust in all situations that God is good, and therefore we are protected from harm. Because God is tov, and it's a future focus. And we say it sometimes in the church, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And that needs to be at the core of who we are, trusting that God is Tove. God is good in ways far beyond our ability. And our good and gracious God watches over us, whether we are coming or going. No matter where we are, we have God. In another psalm, Psalm 139, verses 8 through 10, the psalmist writes this, If I go up to the heavens you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. God watches over us no matter where we are. We cannot escape from him. And if we cannot escape from him, we cannot escape from his goodness. But we need to keep our eyes focused on him. And when we lift our eyes up to the hills, we need to see nothing but God. We need to be drawn to God. So this morning, our call is to trust our good God. To trust that he is the God. To trust that he is an aware God who is fully aware of what we are going through. To trust that he is our God who personally cares about us. And to trust that he is good. Even when it doesn't seem to make sense in our perspective. And so today we're going to take communion, and I'm going to ask those that are serving communion to begin making their way up here so that we can do that. But as we move into this time of communion, I think it's a time, it's a great opportunity for us to reflect on this goodness because the ultimate good of God is seen on the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to talk about how good God is? We need look no further than the cross. where a good God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice in our place when we had no way out to be the sacrifice on our behalf as a sign of his tov, of his goodness. And so we're going to move into that time of of worship and as we take communion. And just as the servers come forward, I will challenge you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, please participate in communion with us. Our communion table is open to all. But if you are not, or if you are in a spot where you today don't feel like You can participate. We ask that you just let the elements pass. There is no judgment. Um, And then once the elements are passed around, please hold on to them and we will take take them together. From 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take it together. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your goodness which shows up on the cross, where you came and offered yourself, and your body was broken on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for that. In your name, amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us take it together. And as we end communion, let us say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
1: Thank you. And uh, folks, you can have a seat if you want. Just a couple quick announcements here. Um, Thank you, Pastor, for that message today. Uh, God is good, is he not? He is Tov. And uh, he cares about you, he cares about me, he cares about all of us. And we can put our trust in him. And when we put our trust in him, one of the things that we can do is we can uh, participate in the sacrament of baptism. And so um, next Sunday at Lake Rebecca... Uh, We are having a baptismal service. Uh, As part of that, we're going to have a picnic. Bring your picnic supplies. The church is going to supply um, hot dogs and uh, drinks and the paper products, but you want to bring some other things to uh, have uh, for yourselves and share with others. If you are interested in being baptized and have not signed up yet, you can look in our email uh, that was sent out to you. If you don't have that, then come and talk to Pastor Bruce uh, or one of the elders, and we'll make sure that... Uh, we uh, uh, get get you lined up. Another way that we uh, show our trust is by sharing what he has done in our lives and you ladies have an opportunity here uh, this uh, coming up on July 11th Tuesday, July 11th is anchored and uh, you're going to have a guest speaker. There's going to be some theme guests. I've been trying to under, uh, and t- figure out what the theme might be for anchored. Um, but uh, that should be fun, and then there's ice cream sundays, so lots of uh, good things happening there, but you're going to have that opportunity to find out what the Lord is doing in the lives of the ladies here in this church and in our community, so please come and join that, and then finally, uh, we trust in God, um, and uh, we show that we trust him by uh, sharing Um, our time, our energy, our resources uh, with uh, his church and his mission. And so uh, we're just asking that as we start this new fiscal year uh, that you'd be on board with us and that you would uh, um, worship and trust through the act of giving. And you can do that via online or mobile or via the giving boxes in the back of the sanctuary. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at
1: wevfree.org. And it is a communion Sunday, so in the back there is the
0: the box as well for uh, the benevolence offering, which goes to help those in our church and community uh, in need of financial assistance. Would you please rise, and I will read the benediction this morning from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week.